Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before we get started yet again, I'm going to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca. You'll get notification of all my podcasts, newsletters, and uh, television appearances. Now, on to today's guest. Today on the show, I have Daniel Simon, author of the book, The Money Hackers, how a group of misfits took on Wall Street and changed the future of finance forever. In the interview, he's going to share stories about the different founders and companies that have forever changed the face of finance in the last 10 years. And with that, here's my interview with Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for taking the time during quarantine to uh, <laughs> to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. I've got nothing but time. Excellent. So do most of us these days. So Daniel Simon, author of The Money Hackers. Let's, uh, before we jump into what The Money Hackers in is, tell us about what it is you do and a little bit about the book before we go into the full detail. So I am a writer, a speech writer, and a communications expert, if you don't like that word, but that's what I am, a communications expert focus on the financial services industry. So despite my thick Bronx accent, I know you might think I'm <laughs> not. I'm, I'm from the UK originally, but I've spent more time in America than anywhere else. I'm Your American. accent's a little bit transatlantic at this point. Just, just Okay, fine. <laughs> well, uh, it's clear I wasn't born here. I am, a, I am an American, just one with a weird voice. And I've spent most of my career on Wall Street. So you know, I'm a communications guy. I advise, obviously, some of the largest banks and asset managers and trading companies and technology firms in, in the world and particularly on Wall Street. So basically you came, you've written this book. Tell us the title, the inspiration and why it was it came to be. So the book is called The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. The book came about in conversation with HarperCollins, who were looking for a consumer book a book that explained to regular non-financial people how technology has transformed money over the last particularly 10, 12 years since the last financial crisis. Because one thing maybe we can talk about today is how, how crises precipitate changes in behavior, so bring about new innovations. So that was certainly the case in 2008, and it uh, precipitated this incredible explosion of technology and they wanted to kind of have someone make sense of it and yeah, it's, I, no, it's no surprise that the satoshi paper on blockchain got dropped right in the middle of that crisis when we basically have paradigm changing crises you typically have a bunch of people dissatisfied with the norms looking for better alternatives than what we've what got us there in the first place so completely understand where that comes from yeah, I mean, lots of these companies that I talk about in the book, Betterment, World Remit, really, Credit Karma, Lending Club, kind of all begin in and around 2008. Excellent. So let's talk about the journey. So basically, you started off doing this with a kind of consumer focus on how money and our relationship has changed. And it was clearly a book based on interviews of these people's personal stories about how they got to where they were. And frankly, we already had a preliminary conversation. Some of these stories were just crazy brilliant in terms of some of the people and what they had to go through to accomplish what they did. When you started off on this journey uh, versus the end of it, what was the biggest surprise in terms of what you expected to come out of this versus what came out of this? And then we'll, we'll start diving into some of these individual stories. So the biggest surprise, I think, was kind of affirmation of the core premise, right? So the core premise was people who are who have changed your money over the last 10 years don't look like people who were touching your money for the 100 years before that. And that was certainly the case for the three or four individuals that I knew personally that I was going to write about going into the book. 
But to, by the time that we ended over 150 interviews with these different entrepreneurs, the amount of similarity between them and their outsiderness or their or what I call their misfitness and their weirdness and their just not being finance people was staggering. So that, I think, surprised me. I thought we were going to have a kind of a premise that kind of held up for sort of 50% of the people that we talked to, but not, not the other 50%. And it held up pretty much across the board. Yeah, it seems to be one of the recurring themes of founders I interview on this podcast is that a lot the vast majority came from outside finance in the first place. And it was something about the way finance worked that just kind of ground their gears and made them want to change it. So you found that basically almost universal, which is which is interesting and affirming of my observation. And I'm also a misfit myself. You there know? You go. I don't really fit anywhere. I'm an English and French literature major. I'm not a finance guy. I just play one on TV. You know, and I, I came so, to- It's a great acclaim. I don't fit anywhere, really. I, I'm a Brit who's lived most of his life in America. I never fit in England because I was kind of an American before I knew I was an American. I did. I was going to be a, a French literature academic and I ended up working on Wall Street. And then I found myself in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. So I'm, I'm a weird, I'm a round peg for a square hole and I always have been. And so I think I was drawn to other outsiders and, and weirdos. So you were finding your tribe throughout this. I did find my tribe in this book. This book is basically Dan's. Daniel P. Simon's tribe of weirdos. So one more thing I want to touch upon that came out of our preliminary conversation versus uh, before we jump into individual use ca individual cases here, individual stories. One of the things we talked about was what we almost call the Silicon Valley ethos of move fast, break things, burn a lot of money while you get there, capture market share. And sure. that has been kind of the general kind of stereotypical belief of how things work in venture funded startups. But you having done interviews with so many people around the world, that ethos just doesn't work in a lot of places, right? It doesn't work in, in places that have super high regulation, like financial markets, rightly so. It doesn't work when you're basically trying to build some of these things in developing markets. So what did you find was different about these people versus the Silicon Valley ethos of, of what we just went over? Well, you're talking there about one element of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. ethos, which is the, the blitz scaling, right? The really Yeah, the, the really sexy look of what, you know, yeah buy your market share. And I, I would agree with you to say that many of these people are sloggers. They are not market share. They're not rocket ships, right? Mm -hmm. Like John Stein from Betterment or Ken Lin from Credit Karma. Maybe Ken more because it's such a consumer product, but Lending Club, I mean, Green Dot. These companies that I talk about, and some of them are B2B companies, didn't do that kind of blitz scale approach. They grind it out, ground it out over years to achieve the kind of market share that they have today. But I would say they probably have a lot more in common with West Coast thinking than with East Coast Wall Street thinking. So John Stein doesn't remember saying this to me, but I remember meeting him back in 2009, 10, and he said, financial literacy is bullshit. It's all just a matter of user experience and user design, UI, basically. And that idea about creating accessible products that are beautiful, that are mm. easy, that are simple, that's a very West Coast mindset. I think there is an element of, I think run fast and break things, which is this idea of lean, minimum viable product, do one thing very well and iterate on it. You know, that's different from blitz scaling. So mm. I think scaling is probably that sort of buy mass user share with just mm. gobs of VC money is probably one of the only things that these fintechs have not adopted 
from the Silicon Valley thinking because do one thing really well. Well, that's the book. That's the app store launches. And then you mm. have an app for lending, an app for payments. You have this great unbundling of the bank and an app for remittances. It used to be you go to a bank branch. They did all of those things in once. The uh, once the very poorly generally, but yes, yeah, badly exactly. Yeah. That that was precisely the unbundling movement. That's a very West Coast idea, which is don't try and do eighty things sort of crap. Do one thing better than anybody else. That's the mm -hmm. app mentality, and so they absolutely adopted that. The idea of being mobile first, they absolutely adopted that. The idea of something you don't have to educate people about compound interest you just do it you know the idea of a lot of the benevolent design for lack of a better term yeah user design user experience yeah. and and also behavioral psychology you know in terms of if you think about things like stash and digit that just say hey we're gonna steal money out of your account stick it in a savings thing you don't have to you don't even have to think about it yeah. do you want to do that yes i do thanks very much and then we'll come back and only give you good news you saved this much here yeah. you have a savings bonus right whereas banks would just sort of or where i i'm on the board at the museum of american finance you know and we're like why won't you save learn yeah. learn about saving this sort of blunt force didactic approach yeah. Yeah, well, you know, learn learn about learn about dieting while you're at it too. I mean, you know, here's the thing: I do believe that there's a base rudimentary level of financial literacy that absolutely would prevent people from blowing themselves up to no end. But there's been studies done that show that if you don't enact the learnings on uh, financial literacy within a couple months of learning them, it's as if you didn't learn them at all. So it's it's habit formation is a very difficult thing, especially around money, and especially when you know people are exactly living. You know, the, the number of people living paycheck to paycheck is not exactly small. So, so see, those are two separate issues, right? So yeah. on the first piece, which is it's very hard to teach people, right? Yeah. Einstein, when asked what the most powerful force in the universe was, he said compound interest. Yes. We could just teach people compound interest. Well, well, we're learning about compounding right now, but just in a bad way. <laughs> exactly. I think yes. if you could I think if you look at things like Stash, Digit, Acorns, they say, yep. screw that. Let's just take the money. Yeah. We'll deal with it. And most people will take that trade. Because you don't have to be a mechanic to drive a car. You don't have to exactly. be a computer engineer to use one. Why are we even talking about financial literacy, frankly, when we don't mm -hmm. talk about electricity literacy to use the light bulb? Yeah. They just created a really nice user interface called a switch that we switch and the light comes on. And that, you know, it's yep. incumbent upon the providers, not the consumers to come up with smarter ways to take advantage of the technology. Finance is a technology. And so I think, you know, that's the first piece of financial literacy. It's interesting. I completely agree with you because I, I, as a financial planner, the threshold is, okay, I want my clients to have some basic knowledge of financial literacy, but I, I make that akin to, you know, you need to brush your teeth and floss. And whether you do or don't, that's it's on you. But you don't need to know how to basically fix a cavity. That is the dentist's realm, right? There's a, there's a certain level of base level education that the light switch does what it does. But beyond that, like, I don't know why we expect people to know the ins and outs of everything. And you know what, in fairness, there's a market for that, because there's a certain segment of the, of the economy that always wants to do it themselves. So that's fine. But it's a it's a misnomer. And it's a mistake to believe that the entirety of society is folk is going to basically benefit from that same level of thinking. 100%. I mean, yeah. I just think that, again, the responsibility needs to be on the financial services providers. Finance yeah. is a technology. It's a technology for moving money backwards and forwards in time. You take a mortgage, you are borrowing from your future mm -hmm. self. 
when you save for retirement, you are sending money into the future to your older, frailer yep. version of yourself, right? It's a technology like any technology. Technology companies don't expect their users to know how technology works. Apple yeah. brilliant in saying, I'm going to deliver you something that's beautiful. Before she passed away, my 94-year-old grandmother was using FaceTime and the iPhone. I am dropping off an iPad to my 95-year-old grandfather for the exact same purpose. <laughs> this and, and, you know, that's yeah. a testament. And they may never, may never have used the computer. They may, it could be, yeah. could be little gnomes for all they give a shit inside making yeah. the pebbles, you know, move. So, so the idea that in finance, which is a technology just like any other, we need these people to understand. No, we don't. It's it's your fault. Yeah. It's your fault, financial oh, yeah. providers, that you didn't create something that's as seamless as an acorns. But in fairness, as well as a clarity money. They develop dark patterns as well because their incentives are not necessarily aligned with those of the clients, right? So if it starts with a premise of of the bad action is the right is the incentive that reinforces the the profitability of the firm, then those patterns are going to be developed in the in the UI itself, right? So sometimes there's a dis- there's a disincentive based on their incentives for them to better that. But anyway, we've gotten kind of got story here, but it's well, been I think valuable. The thing that you said is that there's a limit to financial literacy if Absolutely. no one's got any money to be financially literate Very about. True. I think yeah. there's a misnomer that rich people are financially literate oh, God, and no. people are not. And I think the reality is the, the thing I've always said is, you know, take someone from the urban metropolitan elite like me and mm. ask them how much money they've got in their wallet or in their bank account, and mm. I won't be able to answer. But you take someone out of the middle of America in the lower 20%, they know exactly They what know down to the penny. Yep. Down to the penny. It's not enough. Yeah. It's nowhere near enough. Well, because scarcity makes them have to do that, right? Right. So we've got our our ideas about financial literacy screwed up. And there's a finite amount that being literate will do if you have, if the engine of society is is screwing you out of money. So let's dive into the actual book now. I mean, we talked about some of the overlying themes, but I don't want it because we had a great conversation previously about some of the crazy stories. And you mentioned a couple of companies in particular that keep on coming up on my podcast. I'd like to address them as well. So first off, tell me the single craziest, most interesting story that you had writing this book. Like what was the the one use case or the one one founder that whose story was just riveting? I mean, they're all amazing, but Ishmael Ahmed, who's the founder of a remittance company in the UK, one of the fastest growing tech companies in the UK called World Remit, is just absolutely bonkers. I want to get the rights to his life and I want to sell it as a movie. And if I do, I'm going to say that the movie is uh, Hotel Rwanda meets Pursuit of Happiness, because this guy was a, he grew up in, in Somalia. Mm-hmm. He was a refugee. He was caught up in the middle of the Somali civil war when there was this ethnic cleansing going on. He escapes just barely with his life, hiding in the bed of a flatbed truck, in the wheelbase of a, of a flatbed truck. Gets, finally makes it to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia across the border. He and his family, no one knows. This is 1986, so no one can get in touch with each other. They all think they're dead. He finally gets hold of his brother. He had a scholarship waiting for him at the University of London to study economics. His brother sends him some money in Addis Ababa. It's enough to get him to London to start his studies. And he, he obviously has to work several jobs. Over the first year, he's just pacing the pieces together, finding his family, and then working several jobs to send money back. When he does that, you know, this is his second experience with remittances. The first was when his brother sent him money. Now he's sending money via you know, Western Union, and they're taking a big chunk of his paycheck every time he wants to send money home to mom and dad. That is an understatement. And so he, <laughs> he, uh, 
he, he becomes fascinated with this idea of remittances, which we don't deal with too much in the States because it's a huge country, but many other places in the world, sending money across borders is a big, big issue. And some countries and states inside countries, it's a massive part of their GDP is, is, is a migrant population that's sending money home in India and in the Philippines and other places. So he, he uh, becomes fascinated. He gets a scholarship. I think he goes to the London School of Economics. And finally, he becomes, he rises up inside the UN to become the head of the United Nations remittance program. But that, the story doesn't stop there because it gets even more bonkers crazy. He uncovers a scandal, a financial accounting scandal inside the United Nations, and he becomes a whistleblower. And he is fired by the UN and blacklisted from the industry. So he takes the United Nations to court and wins. <laughs> and with the payout money that he gets from this court case, he starts World Remit, which is undercutting all the money transfer companies like Western Union and making it cheaper for people to send money abroad. So, you know, in a nutshell, he's like the most obviously bonkers kind of story that we had in the book. So one follow-up question to that, because it is a crazy story. Who plays him in the movie? I think it's like Idris Elba now, right? It's yeah. got to be like, I don't know. Who like, who's the, who's the younger version? Like, right. just, What's Will Smith's son called? He's like the Jayden? writer. Jaden Smith for young, and then Idris Elba. Elba for older. Yeah, well, you can never go wrong with Idris Elba cast in anything. So that... <laughs> I mean, I think it's a winning... That's a winning movie, right? I mean, that's a... That, that is one of those ones, again, that proves life is straighter, stranger than fiction by all stretches of the imagination. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of companies on here that were, were quite interesting to come up on quite a lot. So Betterment, Betterment being kind of the, the founders of the robo-advisor movement and spurned, yeah. uh, spawned however many copycat imitators. Tell me about their story. Yeah, I mean, John Stein, again, he's like me. He was never thinking about being in finance, kind of oh, looked down his nose at it. Came graduated in 2008. Well, he, I think he'd done a, a, I think he'd be a consultant for a couple of years before that. But basically in 2008, you know, in the depth of the financial crisis, he, he decided to start, you know, robo-advisor for the same reason that so many of the people that we document in the book, these, these money hackers kind of looked at the system and think, this is broken. Like people mm -hmm. are paying a lot of money and they're not getting great service and there must be a simpler way. And so he, he taught himself to code so that he could stand up the first, he had a friend who literally taught him coding so that he could stand up the first version of Betterman. And that's pretty consistent with a lot of the people that we spoke to in the book. A lot of these companies get started in the depth of a crisis like right now. And I've been thinking a lot since I wrote the book, particularly in light of the COVID you know, crisis that we're living through right now, why that is. And I, I've this, I think I've decided that the reason is that the cost and risk equation gets flipped on its head during a crisis. So when you, you know, if you would have, why would a John Stein not build a business like Betterment a year ago, right? Like 2019. Job uh, security. Yes. He's not got worried job, about that. Yeah. You know, his purchasing, he's buying, he's sorry, selling power as a, as an employee is enormous in 2019. So he has to quit like some crazy paying job. He has to give up hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a company when everything, labor, rent, like APIs and the technology he needs are unbelievably expensive. Yep. So, so the, cost, the cost to him is enormous and the risk to him is enormous. But you flash forward to today, when my local steakhouse is selling a steak sandwich last, you know, six months ago, it was $25. Today, it's $6, $6 delivery. They'll, they'll mm. like, 
Oh, you want to buy a steak sandwich? I'll send it around. Right? Yeah. So the cost of assets is- Six dollars in New York is something. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. For filet mignon sandwich, no less. So, what the hell? So, the cost is, so the cost of starting these things has gone completely down. Yeah. Then other talent, people to join you on the journey, technology, APIs. Yeah. And also there's no jobs to be had. A lot of these people got laid off in 2008 or got la- or getting laid off right now. And so you're not leaving money on the table to go and start something that could be the next Google. Mm-hmm. So I think it seems weird when people say, it does seem counterintuitive that in the midst of a crisis like this, or in the midst of say 2008, you would start a robo advisor. Yeah. Why would you start a robo advisor in the depth of the largest financial crisis in at least a generation? Because there's the opportunity. And that's, that's exactly why. Yeah. I'm curious, did you ever talk with him about his approach to the industry in general? Because there's been two different approaches taken largely by robo-advisors. Well, three, really. There's the, we're going to go at it alone and just compete. There's the, we're going to go at it alone and talk about destroying conventional advisory models, which is, you know, a couple of robos that are large and will not be named. And then there's been Betterment's approach, which I think was probably the first one I saw on scale that basically not only had a direct-to-consumer, but also said, hey, advisory world, we know you're doing some good work. Why don't we partner with you and allow you to use, utilize our platform? Did that ever come up in the conversation? It hasn't come up with John, but I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. We touch on it a little bit in the book, and I can give you my own personal- Sure, by all means. Which is, you know, which is that I don't think that the human piece is going anywhere. And you've seen as some of these robos try to launch their own kind of human- human piece. I think I've talked about this inflection point between self-serve and human interaction. And I think that the idea that it's like human advisors versus robos is a false dichotomy. Yeah. There isn't, it isn't like that anymore. It's the cyborg than, advisor, put them together and you're more powerful. Yeah. Or, or, or bits of one for bit and another, yeah. you know, for example, I'll give you an example. Think, take a parallel. I always think of health and wealth as being very parallel. You use the flossing example, actually. It's kind of interesting, right? You do sort of healthy activities in your life and you, this could apply to both, right? You do healthy activities in your life. Mostly you don't want to have to talk about it because if you're having to talk about it in either case there's probably a problem there's something going on you're not happy about you've got a pain or an ache or something where you do have to you for the most part you want to self-serve so when they started having i could text to get my prescriptions that's what i want i want a text to get my prescriptions Mm -hmm. which i think would be the equivalent of like i don't want to have to fax you a form mr advisor right i want there's certain parts of that continuum where I just want self-serve, I want one button, I just want to take care of it. And then it flips over. If my hand turns blue, there's no amount of self-serve I want. I want to fucking talk to, excuse my language, I want to talk to you, bleep me out, I'm sure. I want to talk to you. Maybe, maybe I just put you down as explicit for this episode, but continue. <laughs> I, doctor, I want to grab someone by the throat. So what the hell is wrong with yeah. me? And I think that the same thing exists in the human, in the financial world, that the human element is always going to be enormously important because there's very few things in this life more important than health and wealth. They're the sort of two cornerstones, a foundation of a good life. And without them, you can't really do anything else. So I think that there is absolutely a place for robo-advisors. And what I talked about in the book, and this is across the board, it's not just in wealth management and robo, is if you add up all of the assets of the robo-advisors, they are not even 1% of Vanguard. Right. Yeah. Who, by the way, has the largest robo advisor. Right. uh, Yeah. So, so the thing is the thing in my in my mind. There's two types of competition. There's the type where 
which we get kind of get very obsessed about, like the blockbuster versus Netflix mm-hmm. or the Kodak versus digital cameras, right? There's that kind of Clayton Christensen's innovators dilemma story of, of disruption, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Which is the story that we all love to see, which is big behemoth. They don't see something coming. Then this little tiny David Goliath story, little tiny thing comes on and then boom, Netflix, read Hastings. Reed tries to sell Netflix to Blockbuster in 2004 and they yeah. laugh about the room and then look where we are now. That's the sort of t- classic story of innovation. But that's actually, most innovation doesn't work like that. Better, in most versions of the story, Betterment does not take over, name no. your favorite institutional asset manager or wealth manager, Morgan Stanley, client of mine. Betterment doesn't take over Morgan Stanley. But what they do is that the ideas that they unleash on the market it come adopted by the mainstream. Exactly. And this is where I say that if anything, you know, conventional advisors owe a debt of gratitude to the robos because we were putting up with just archaic nonsense systems for so long with no hope of change in the foreseeable future. And then the competition basically rattled incumbents enough to basically say, you know what? Huh? It really shouldn't take that long to open an account. It really should have straight through processing. We really should be like, wow, we can, instead of creating this mountain of paper, we can get this done in 10 minutes. This is crazy or less in most cases. So I, I like disruption that we can copy and, and borrow. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the story. The, the, the example I always give is Facebook and, it, and um, so Instagram and Snapchat, right? Yep. Because, you know, for every great story, David Goliath's story, like Blockbuster and Netflix, there's about a thousand versions of, of Instagram and Snapchat where Snapchat yep. come out and Instagram, the incumbent just goes, that's good. We'll have that. Oh, you have stories that disappear. We'll do that too. Yeah. Oh, you have filters. We'll have those. What a well. great idea. Yeah. yeah we'll, just, we'll just rip and replace. So that the people that bring you, it may or may not survive, but the ideas change the world. And Absolutely. that's what I write in my author's note. And so if you think about it from a consumer perspective, what the robos said is, why are you paying 100 basis points? You should be paying 35. Yep. And if advisors want to charge 100 basis points, they need to do other things. Bingo. So I think that what the, you know, and again, this, my book is a lot more about broad finance than just pure robos. But just in this world, I happen to believe that what the robo movement will do is it will lead to a world in which 35 basis points or whatever that number is, is the established price for the old fashioned buying and selling stocks. But advisors should and will charge a lot more for looking at both sides of the ledger, for holding your hand, for inculcating good behaviors, for giving you great yeah. insight, for doing all that other stuff. Yeah. Our value is never in the stuff of onboarding clients and the day-to-day routine maintenance. That is something that is far better done by a algorithm that we can do. Yeah, the, our, our value was always in the planning, right? So it's funny because I've seen many seminars now on topics such as, you know, what are you doing for your 70 basis points? If that's the 30s, what the robo's charging, what are you doing in, uh, for the difference? Because quite honestly, you need to do something, otherwise you're relevant because you've been undercut. So let's move on from the robos. I want to touch on a couple more before we wrap up. The second one was green dot banking. This is one that comes up with me quite frequently on this podcast, but very few people actually have heard this name. Can you talk to me about their origin story and what it is they do? Yeah, it's probably not coming up. People probably don't know their name because it's not for them. Exactly. Or they don't, they, they're using it in some cases, but they have no idea. Green Dot's a great story. Another one of these like um, just absolutely bonkers stories. So this guy, Steve Street, started Green Dot. He is another one of these misfits. He came out of the music industry. And in fact, uh, we have him to thank for what we call soft rock. So he was working. He was an A&R guy. He was, he was working 
in the studios and and in radio at the time. This is eighties, nineties, you know. Yep. And they were like, um, "We've got this music sound, you know, and it's not like hard rock and roll. There's no hair metal. What's going on? There's no heavy metal, but it's not pop, you know." And he's like, "Let's call it soft rock." And so he is the godfather. He coins this is his first claim to fame. He coins this. Is, this is he creates? A, is he creates a? Um, oh God, what's the term? Uh, 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 Genre. No, no, no. Uh, when two things are opposite of each other but put together. Um, oh, I see. The juxtapositional uh, state. <laughs> yeah, juxtaposition. Yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, quite an amusing juxtaposition. All right, so so he basically starts off in, in A&R and somehow ends up in the world of... So he gets, he gets a big payout from the music industry. I, I can't remember which studio was bought by which, but he ends up with a few million, Bob. And he has this idea for his second act. And his second act is going to be... Credit cards for T-Day. It's going to be cool credit cards. So he's your prepaid credit cards at your 7-Eleven. Teens who want the experience of a credit card. but Legally can't get one. They legally can't get one. So you get prepaid credit cards. This is a big idea. So he has all these, he, you know, goes through the process, finds a, a card, teams up with Visa or whoever it is. Starts creating these prepaid credit cards and puts these credit cards in like 7-Elevens with rad 12-year-old skateboarders. Um, you know, pictures of kids in beanie caps. And he waits and he waits and no one is buying. No one is buying these cards. And after a few months, he sort of starts to lose hope and he starts to despair. And then he starts getting these messages from inventory or whatever from from 7-Eleven. People are buying the kids' credit cards. But he has no data. He has no way of Mm. figuring this out. So he starts like hanging around 7-Elevens and Rite-Aids to just sort of see like he'll like camp out at a right yeah. to watch who goes and buys it. And much to his surprise, it is not, it is not 16 year old uh, skateboarders, but it's like 55 year old Mexican manual laborers or 48 year old African-American gentlemen. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like absolutely not the demographic that he thought, which was going to be affluent white bratty teenagers it's hard-working primarily minorities so what he failed to realize was that those kids already take their parents credit cards <laughs> that's right yeah those those kids were well served already yeah but who wasn't served is the vast plurality of people in this country who are massively underbanked or unbanked altogether right more people in this country own a mm-hmm. own a cell phone than a bank account and we don't see it every day but around us a vast amount of this population are are woefully underserved by the traditional mm-hmm. financial services industry they're in a cash economy you still you know have you ever walked down a dodgy side street and seen a cash checking or check cashing i should say uh store yep. and you think wow checks jesus who's using that a lot of people a lot of people and so what he realized very quickly is that there's no market for bratty teenagers for prepaid credit cards but there was this enormous market here for the underserved and the underbanked primarily minorities or what you know it's a class it's a class issue and mm-hmm. so he rapidly and smartly pivots the business and green dot becomes a bank for the underbank and today it's the largest bank for the underbank in fact it's one of the only fintechs in the united states to have its actual banking license most mm-hmm. fintechs that we talk about chime or the ones that are coming here now like n26 monzo revolute yep. are partnering up with existing banks because it's, it's very difficult to get a banking license well like country. like green dot themselves and green dot got their own banking like they actually went no to, but i mean i mean partnering up with the green dot like green dot yeah yep. to, to yeah and so that's put them in this very unique position 
So it's just a story of a smart guy who, who was outside of finance, thought he had an idea, happened to be totally wrong. That's another great sort of entrepreneurial trait. Yep. But was smart enough to pivot and re- see the opportunity in the crisis and went on to do, you know, not just an amazing institution, but something that's really doing some good in the world. Excellent. Yeah, they come up a lot as an example of backend providers of banking as a service, because that's still, yeah, most people don't know who they are because you might use a Revolut. You might get captured by one of these new neo banks that are coming out, but you don't realize that in the back end, it might be Green Dot Banking. It might be someone else who basically yes. is providing that platform because it's just far more affordable, with far fewer obstacles for someone else to white label their deposit accounts than it is for them to go out and get their own banking service. So if, it, if we wouldn't have the neo banks and challenger banks of the world, if not for the likes of Green Dot. So I, as a someone who's not a big fan of large banks in Canada, um, <laughs> uh, can, can do nothing but thank companies like this for their insight and their, uh, their willingness to allow competition to flourish. So before we wrap up with my final three questions, I want you to give you the opportunity to pick up another one of your stories that you think is one of the more compelling stories you've heard altogether. And let's just have a conversation around that. Sure. It's like trying to pick between your children. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Difficult choice. You know, I also want to stop naming just dudes. So can I do two real quick instead Let's of- Let's do it. Yeah, no, by all means. As long as you want to go longer. <laughs> I want to name two women. You know, go one is uh, because they're emblematic of some of the things that were happening in the middle of the cri- the last crisis in 2008. So one is Margaret Keane, who's now the CEO of Synchrony Bank. At the time, it was GE Capital. Yes. And you talk about sort of stodgy institutions. So she had the foresight to realize they had a very large technology force, but they weren't being used properly. So she goes on a fact-finding trip in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008 to San Francisco to the offices of Splunk. And she said, you know, the mother in her was disgusted by the state of the offices and she wanted to just clean it up. There's this frat bro dorm with just smelly socks and pants all over clean it up. But on the other side, she was absolutely blown away by some of the things that we now recognizes development norms like scrum, lean, and iterative approaches to development. And she said, Christ, we need this if we're to survive and innovate. And she brought that methodology back and she carved out some of her best technologists and said, you don't work on maintaining legacy systems anymore. You're off. You're going to do this blue skies thinking. You're going to approach the world. And that's basically what became the core of Synchrony Bank today. The other is Blythe Masters, who was the poster child of the financial crisis, having had a hand in creating the credit default swap. She is a an absolute phenom. Youngest managing director at Morgan, uh, JP Morgan basically did help invent the credit default swap. She's a legit straight up genius. And most of her life was spent inside uh, traditional financial services. So when she came out and in 2000, just after the financial crisis, when her first move was to digital asset, which was the biggest name in distributed ledger blockchain technology, although she would say, I was doing it on behalf of the banks, the irony was not lost on the world that this is a woman who dedicated her entire life to institutions, mostly sort of central institutional in middlemen institutions fabric institutions and and here she was working for this company that was using a technology blockchain that is essentially distributed in its nature and you know like you mentioned at the top with with the satoshi nakamoto white paper mm-hmm. kind of took aim directly you know at the central 
institutions like the banks and and exchanges and central counterparties. So the in Greek tragedy they call that peripetia, the the flipping, the one eighty yeah. was just incredible, and she's a friend and uh, just an incredible person. Fantastic. So before we wrap up, three questions I ask everyone. Now, normally it's about the business they're working in, but we're going to kind of modify this and uh, yeah. talk about in the book or the context of the financial industry as a whole. If you had one wish for something to change in the industry as a whole, what would it be? That we take care of everybody. That some of the changes that we talk about in the book, which are embodied by the fintech movement about serving more people, a more diverse group of people trying to solve for the underbanked and the underserved and realizing that, you know, we as an industry will not succeed by serving a shrinking pool of growing assets until there's only Jeff Bezos left. Jeff Bezos can only work with one financial advisor. And right now, much of the financial industry is still chasing a diminishing set of growing, albeit larger set of assets, but amongst a smaller and smaller group of people, 50% of the world could double their wealth by taking it from the top 40 families. And those people can only work with a set number of financial institutions. And so we as an industry have to, we as an industry have to find out how to become profitable serving everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one because I've I've taken part in various roundtables and and just open forums uh, with people from you know some of these traditional institutions, and sometimes almost like mind bending to hear them talk because you'll hear them talk about the same altruistic principles you're talking about now, but then in the next breath they talk about how they're engineering everything they can to compete in the ultra high network space and how that's their focus and priority. And there was one time I literally, after hearing this from the fifth person, just snapped and said, okay, enough already, people. Like, you can't have it both ways. Like, you're sitting here talking about all these things you're doing that are wonderful for society that you intend to do. And then you turn around and talk about how you're only offering it to people with tons of money. So which one is it? Because clearly there's, there's, a, there's a roadblock in your mind where you can't do that for everybody because it just doesn't make sense. So stop talking one story or start living it. And I think it was not so well received, but nevertheless, it was it was just... It's interesting to hear. Like they, they talk about it, but the action, when it comes down to their actions and we have to judge them by, it just doesn't happen. So I, it only is going to come from innovative solutions such as what we're seeing in, in, the, in the fintech space. Yeah, it's not just immoral. It's also a recipe for disaster. You know, that Absolutely. is Clayton Christian. that is Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma. If you look at what happened with the mini mills and the rebar industry and Bingo. the steel industry or what happened with Kodak, someone comes along and serves a bottom end of the market. And then the providers to that space say, well, that's unprofitable. Let them have it. Yeah. And then they get better. The digital camera improves and they take the next tranche of the market. Yep. And Kodak says, that's not where the money is anyway. We want the professional photographers because that's what the, you know, that's, and then it gets better and yep. better and better. And eventually, if you're not careful, what started with you happily giving away 10%, the bottom 10% becomes all the way up to 60, 70% of the market as these, and now today, of course, this phone on my iPhone, it, my, this camera on my iPhone is better than any Kodak camera that was ever created. Yeah, That will be the same if these guys don't get their act together. So it's, it's not just good for the world. It's enlightened self-interest. It's, it's uh, doing well by doing good. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, you picture, let's go back to the robo-analogy. Let's imagine there was some sort of barrier to entry on being a robo-advisor that traditional institutions couldn't get to. And I could just imagine them basically, like I hear them now, like, oh, yeah, let them take all the millennials. What do we care about them? We can't make money off them anyway, right? Yeah. And besides the fact that those are the people who are going to inherit all the money, the reality is, is that they're just going to continue to move up market. And if they can make 
something that was unprofitable to your institution profitable, then the profitable clients to your institution are crazy profitable to them. And they can afford to service them while undercutting your price at a better level anyway. So it's, it's really, you know, again, innovators dilemma, please more of that, more disruption in, in the financial industry. I'm all for it. Anyway, so yeah, next question. I'm going to tailor this again to your specific situation being the author of the book. Normally the question is, what's the biggest challenge in getting your company to where it is today? I want to see if you can find, was there like a commonality to the people you interviewed that they, they faced a common challenge in getting their companies to where they are today? Uh, did they face a common challenge? I tell you one of the things that I often talk about in this industry in particular, which I won't say is consistent across every single one of them, but I saw it a lot. I saw it with Yodley. I saw it with World Remit, mm-hmm. which is counterintuitive, I guess, from the traditional view of innovation. So the traditional view of innovation is that you go into a room and you, like Edison or Ford, and mm-hmm. you you just invent something, all jobs and the iPhone. You just stand on a stage in Cupertino and then you just show everybody the new world. And it's just easy and perfect and visionary. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's great. And one of the things I saw, you know, that was a challenge for these guys is like the plumbing of oh, God. how much goes into actually doing this. So World Remit, to make it easier for people to send and receive money and cheaper for people to send and receive money across borders, he literally had to go and plumb every one of those banking relationships across 300 countries. And just like, and it's the same with Yodley, if you know, Plaid, Yodley, many yep. of the API infrastructures that kind of on which the modern fintech world is built, creating category codes for every possible version of a transaction, you know, just manifest. Some poor sod sat there and just plumbed and just the grind of this thing. I can't I imagine that from a Yoldi standpoint, literally trying to every type of transaction, trying to figure out which category code it goes into, given yeah. that you get this abstract and, information. And oh. 3,000 banks to connect with. And it's just a vast, it's a, it's a factorial kind of exponential amount of blunt force trauma. You just have to throw at this thing. There's no elegance to it. There's no beauty and simplicity. It's just hard effing grind. And that is one thing I would say is you see with a lot of these people, it isn't just like, oh, it was, you know, Instagram, so simple. Yeah. So, oh, so simple yeah. and now billions of people use it. Someone, because what we're dealing with is not freaking photo sharing or putting a, a nice filter on a picture. It's actually people's money. That a lot of work had to get put into making something that's seamless and frictionless and simple. Yep. And it's, it's interesting because people, you know, again, the entire, we're, this is going to emerge from our minds in the finished state almost never, ever, ever happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, even the iPhone wasn't perfect when it started out. It was still 3G in a, in a near 4G world. It had no copy paste functionality. It was very, very, very expensive compared to everything else at the time. And even, you know, Instagram, like it started off as a company called Bourbon and was not about filters and all this stuff. So yeah, there is no, oh, we just disappeared for three months and came up with this beautiful line, these beautiful lines of code, and yeah. now the product is done. Like, yeah, no. no. And that you multiply that by a thousand for finance. Yeah. You yeah. multiply that for a thousand. So, and yeah. some of these companies like Yodley literally, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah. Literally, they spent a decade of their lives doing this to bring us really seamless experiences. But they were building a moat at the same time because that pain once suffered is not necessarily the pain that someone wants. Exactly, right? So once you've built 3,000 connections and figured all this stuff out, 
and you offer that as a service and the next person has the opportunity to build it themselves or use your platform and pay you as a, pl- a platform fee, that's a very simple decision for them. Yeah, you become the electricity company. It's a utility story. It's a utility story. You built all those nodes and now everyone. So then you empower a second generation of exactly. innovators to build off the platform that you've built. And so people owe those companies an enormous debt. Yeah. Because in many ways, the fintechs that we're used to using are, in fact, actually just secondary and tertiary yep. industries sitting on top of the, I say in, the, in my author's note, you know, it's turtles all the way down. Every, any, every <laughs> But the world is not flat. Okay. <laughs> every innovator stands on the shoulders yep. of another one. Well, if you want to understand the power of compounding, look at what it was the Coda program back in 2000 versus what it is now, right? And oh, as we... It has Ray Kurzweil says every generation builds its products, what it builds its its tools with the tools that were built by the previous generation. So it just becomes easier and easier. And you look at the speed at which I see some of these companies develop now. It is just mind boggling. Whereas yeah. but it takes for granted that it's because AWS did all the heavy lifting. It's because yeah, Adobe yeah, did yeah, all yeah. the heavy lifting. Stand up stuff today is is yeah. is very quick, and that's. That's optim. You know, that gives me great hope about you know how we solve some of these problems. Absolutely. So, last question I'm going to ask, and actually, just write this at you, and not specifically to people in the book. So, what excited you the most about writing this book, and what kept you going while writing this book? Because writing a book can be a quite the labor, and it's it's one that many people start and don't finish. So, what was what was it that drove you forward to get to completion on this? Mm, that is such a good question. Aside from the contract. <laughs> Open the contract with HarperCollins. Yeah. Fear <laughs> of lawsuits. The advance, yeah, the advance I'd already spent. <laughs> <laughs> no, aside from those things, I think a couple of things. I had a great writing partner, a guy called Chris Duan, that I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude. He's a screenwriter in, in LA. And so, you know, where I might start with payments gateways, he starts with John Stein took a sip of his pitch black espresso and looked out of the window, that sort of thing. Wondered longingly. <laughs> Help me bring some of these things to life in a way that I, you know, I'm a writer by trade, but I, mm-hmm. I just don't write like that. And it made these things once again more interesting, even for me, the way he wrote and helped me write. So that's the first thing I would say it was great. I think what I talked about before, where you constantly reaffirm the premise, you go into this thinking, okay, and that's how I sold the book to HarperCollins is like, listen, there's been a revolution. The people that are bringing us these changes to our money look different from their forebears. And in fact, they look different from anything that's ever come before. They're motivated by different things. It's not about moving money around or making more of it for richer, for a smaller and smaller pool of richer people. They're motivated by... Ideas like access, beauty, uh, democracy, fairness, things that weren't bywords for the financial industry. So you say all that up front, you've got maybe two examples. And then as you start to uncover things, you know, someone will say, oh, go talk to Steve Street at Green Dot. And you start doing your research. And it just reaffirms, oh, shit, there's another one. And then there's another one. And before you know it, you've got a whole book full of these people that reaffirmed your premise. So, yeah, that was enormously validating every, I mean, in the end, the thing just blew up because we, we went into it thinking we were going to talk to 10 people for 10 chapters. We ended up talking to 150 people because each one of them would be like, well, you can't really, you know, you go to lending, personal lending, and you can't, you know, Renault Laplanche, who created Lending Club and basically started peer-to-peer lending would be like, well, what are you doing on the small business front? Because we're only personal finance. Are you talking to Cabbage? And you'd be like, ah, shit, fuck. Okay, kind of got to talk to Cabbage. Cabbage. <laughs> And you talk to Catherine Petrelia yep. at Cabbage, who's amazing, by the way. And she'd be like, yeah, well, you can't really tell the story of lending unless you talk about Ken Lynn at Credit Karma and everything he did. But, to but there, is, there is your point about standing on the shoulders of giants. Every one of them depended on the innovation that either happened before them or was happening concurrently with them at that time. 
Yeah, so it was like a, a Russian doll. You'd kind <laughs> of constantly be unpacking it. But what kept me going through it was I wasn't hearing different stories along the way. It was the same con- core concept. People who were technologists or different or weirdos or outsiders or misfits being motivated by things other than just pure financial gain and using technology to change a paradigm shift in the way that we interact with our money. Fantastic. Well, I encourage everybody to take a look at the book. Uh, these stories are, if, it, if the stories we've told thus far are not intriguing enough to you, I, I don't know what is. Yeah, don't uh, buy the book if you don't like any of the yeah, stories. Like that's, I mean, honestly, crazy, crazy stuff and, and paradigm earth changing stuff. So hopefully it'll give some context to, to what's going on out there. So highly encourage everybody to pick up the book. Daniel, thank you very much for taking the time. It has been published already, so it's out there. And uh, yes, thank you yet again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So that was my interview with Daniel. I hope you found that stimulating and entertaining. I highly encourage you to pick up the book. It is fantastic. I am actually recording this after I finally finished it. And uh, yeah, it was uh, for those of you who like learning about fintech, it's, uh, it's a fantastic read. So as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever is you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.